And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davis. <clears throat> Happy can, can we do a thing where you record these intros before <laughs> I come on, and then I no, just Derek, your face this. is what keeps me going. Actually, okay, all right. Derek enough. looks beatific. He's just embarrassed because he doesn't like feeling emotions, the true emotions. Uh, that no, I give I'm, him I'm nice very happy thing. with the uh, <laughs> the beard. My beard has come in uh, pretty thick these days. I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, ba- baby New Year. Derek's actually dressed in a diaper with a sash around him uh, that says 2023. Because we're certain, we're certain that this year is going to be better than the last, and that the news is going to be all sunshine and lollipops and something, something and gumdrops. Because that's what U.S. Empire is about. So, Derek, welcome back from vacation, and let's get into it. Why don't we start with an update on Ukraine? Uh, sure. Ukraine, uh, the fighting, there's been some progress made, I think, uh, in terms of the Russian operation in eastern Ukraine. There's been heavy fighting, uh, for much of this week around a town called Solidar, which is near Bakhmut. Bakhmut is a city in Donetsk Oblast that's been the focus, uh, of Russian attention for quite some time. Now, Solidar, is just outside Bakhmut, so um, there's some, you know, it's obviously a territorial advance. It also uh, is home to uh, at least one very large salt mine, uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, in Europe. Um, now, there's been some, the, most of the fighting around Bakhmut is being handled, or m- maybe all of it is being handled by the Wagner Group, the private military firm that uh, oftentimes supports uh, the Russian military in places like Syria and, of course, U- Ukraine now. <clears throat> There's been some speculation that the owner uh, of Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, is most interested in Bakhmut and Solidar because he wants the mines. He wants the, the minerals, uh, the salt. There's gypsum mines in the area that he's interested in. Uh, he claims that the mines themselves have military value because they're big enough to move military equipment around. Who knows? Uh, the upshot is that the Russians, uh, after several days of heavy fighting, it appears uh, that the Russians, and by Russians I do mean Wagner Group, uh, are mostly in control of Solidar. The, they're still, the Ukrainians say they're still holding out, um, but the assessment from, well, from Wagner Group itself, from the UK, uh, there's been a couple of other kind of independent uh, sources are that the, the the Wagner Group fighters are pretty much in control of the town. There may still be some cleaning up going on, uh, but they're still pretty much in control of it. Uh, they have uh, expended a great deal of manpower, it seems like, to take this place whose significance you know, may be a little bit questionable, but who knows. Also sticking with the Russians, uh, the Russian government, Vladimir Putin, replaced his commander, his overall commander in Ukraine. He appointed 
Valery Gerasimov, who is the chief of the, the Russian general staff, the equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in the U.S. as his overall commander in Ukraine. Now, Gerasimov is the overall commander of the Russian military, so he's ultimately in charge anyway. Uh, but it seems he will be taking a more direct role in Ukraine. As always, these uh, frequent shuffles of the command structure indicate that everything about this invasion is going exactly as the Russians planned. It's all been a perfect perfect military operation from their perspective. Uh, I've seen speculation that Gerasimov was promoted to this position or appointed to this position because the previous Russian commander in Ukraine, Sergei Sorovkin, is actually a little too close to Prigozhin and Wagner Group for the Kremlin's comfort, but that's all kind of inside baseball, and uh, I would not put a whole lot of stock uh, in that. So it appears that Prigozhin is trying to position himself as kind of a shadow defense minister of sorts, who's more respected than Shoigu, who is a civilian, and also who has Putin's ear. I guess the other thing to note here is that there have been some moves in recent days, some serious moves toward filling one of the big asks on the Ukrainian shopping list in terms of Western military support, which is supplying them with Western-made main battle tanks by a couple of moves one I'm, I'm i'm talking about here is the biden administration's announcement last week on friday that it was putting together a massive 3.75 billion dollar military aid package for ukraine uh, that package includes the provision of bradley infantry fighting vehicles now bradley's are not main battle tanks but they are armored vehicles they could be considered light tanks they're also troop transports so that's a step in the direction of, of main battle tanks. The German government has also agreed uh, to provide similar, they're, they're called martyrs, uh, the, the one that, that uh, the Germans made or make. Uh, the French government has agreed to supply its AMX-10RC armored combat vehicles. All these things serve kind of the same general role, but they are, as I say, a step toward uh, the main battle tank. Now, just on, uh, I believe... Wednesday, uh, the president of Poland, Andrzej Duda, uh, was in Lviv visiting uh, the, you know, kind of behind the, the front lines. Uh, and he seemed to commit Poland to supplying Ukraine with a company of actual main battle tanks. This would be the first, uh, you know, kind of kind of push over this this hurdle. Uh, Poland has a, a, a some German made leopard main battle tanks. And so he committed to supplying them with a company, which is around 14, 15 uh, of these vehicles. But he also suggested, and I'm not sure uh, if this was more kind of an encouragement or a statement that Poland wouldn't go through with it unless uh, other members of the kind of NATO community uh, joined them in supplying main battle tanks to Ukraine. Uh, obviously, as I said, France, Germany, the UK, and the US are all kind of um, on this this path or on a path to doing this anyway, the UK in particular has reportedly been considering it. So uh, this may not be very far off. What I what I would say about this is, you know, something that that I think we've talked about in the past is this sort of inexorable pressure to keep supplying Ukraine with more and bigger and fancier, more expensive, uh, and um, you know more significant more substantial uh, assistance the longer this war goes on uh, we've seen it in the provision of long-range artillery units we've seen it in the provision of uh, drones to some extent although they haven't crossed the line to really advanced drones 
but the Ukrainians are asking for more. They're asking for, you know, F-16s. They're asking for uh, longer range artillery. They're asking for more sophisticated drones. I think all of these things eventually, no matter what the U.S. may say at any given time or what, what uh, NATO may say at any given time, all these things are still on the table. And the longer the, the conflict goes on, the more likely that we go over that hurdle and, and provide them. So, so, so we haven't done news for a while. Maybe you could give your sense of what's the state of conflict now. We're coming up um, on a year of the invasion. And so what does it look like the conflict is going to be a so-called frozen conflict? Uh, does it look like there's going to be kind of retreats, advances? Is there anything that you could tell? Yeah, it's hard. It's still hard to say because it's hard to know what the Russians are envisioning at this point. I mean, certainly this has the trappings of a frozen conflict. Uh, despite the, the, you know, kind of relatively small territorial advance this week, uh, the front line has been stable for quite some time now. Uh, and it's really along in, in, you know, part and a large part of the front line lies along the Dnipro River, which, uh, is sort of a natural geographic point for, to, that could serve as a boundary for quite some time for, I think, maybe indefinitely. So yeah, I would say it still has the trappings of a frozen conflict. There haven't been any major territorial developments other than this capture of Solidar, and who, you know, I, I would hesitate to call that major uh, since the last time we talked about this. So I don't think the assessment has necessarily changed. Now, again, I say it depends on what the Russians are are doing here. I mean, the, the Ukrainians have speculated, you know, a couple of military officials have speculated that maybe the Russians are planning another offensive, like another major offensive over the winter when the ground is frozen and uh, movement is a little easier. Maybe, you know, another attack even on Kiev. I think that's, uh, I mean, I would say unlikely or, or you know, seems unrealistic, but uh, I, you know, I've, I've I have gone broke trying to predict what the Russians are going to do uh, for much of this war. So, uh, you know, if I were going to a casino, I would not uh, I would not want to place any bets on this. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, nothing really about how I would assess the state of the conflict has changed. But could we wake up tomorrow and, you know, the Russians have launched another column toward the, the capital? Sure, it's it's entirely possible. Let's move on uh, to Ethiopia. What's going on there? Yeah, so I think when we left off uh, talking about Ethiopia, there were some questions about the implementation of the peace deal that the Tigray People's Liberation Front and the Ethiopian government signed in November. Um, they had not; they were missing deadlines to uh, for the TPLF to disarm. Uh, the TPLF was saying that it, it couldn't disarm because the Ethiopian government hadn't met its requirements in terms of getting kind of third party forces out of Tigray, um, mostly the Eritrean military, but also uh, regional security forces from Amhara. Just this week, uh, it was reported that the TPLF has finally begun surrendering heavy weaponry to the Ethiopians. As I say, they've missed uh, their deadlines to do this, but I think, you know, better late than never uh, is definitely something I would say applies in this situation. The handover is reportedly being monitored by representatives of the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, which is the Horn of Africa's kind of regional development block. And it sounds like maybe they're, they're finally making some progress. Now, I don't, I still don't know what the status is as far as the Eritreans, if they're still there, uh, or if there's some, in, if this is an indication that they've maybe been pushed back to, into Eritrea. 
Um, the Amhara, I, I haven't heard anything about either. And I can't imagine, given that uh, the Amhara government claims part of Tigray as its own, it has a historical claim on, on what is currently called Western Tigray, but, uh, you know, uh, has in the past belonged to the Amhara uh, region. So uh, I can't imagine that they would have just given that up. But uh, again, it's, it's, you know, with Ethiopia, a lot of this stuff is fairly opaque. There still isn't, uh, uh, hasn't been a real opening of the Tigray region either fully to humanitarian relief, although that has gotten certainly much better since the peace deal was negotiated. But there, there hasn't been um, an opening of communications or, you know, freedom for reporters to kind of go in and uh, assess the situation independently. So it's still a lot of guesswork trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And we'll keep you updated here on American Prestige. So a topic that's been occupying a lot of people, especially on the left, was the riot that took place on January 8th with the uh, Bolsonaro supporters storming uh, the Brazilian capital. So... Derek, uh, we did a special on this, so if people are interested in going deep into the origins, they should check out the special. But what's happened since uh, we recorded that with Ben Fogel? So, yeah, to recap, I mean, there was a a riot in the uh, central government area of Brasilia on Sunday. Uh, We did recap, we did discuss that with Ben. Uh, Basically, you know, sort of superficial at least, uh, had the trappings of of you know the Trump supporters storming the U.S. Capitol in in January on January sixth two thousand twenty one. Uh, this involved all the major offices of the Brazilian government, so it involved the National Congress Building, the uh, Presidential Palace, the Supreme Court Building, um, and the devastation. I would say was the the sort of ransacking was was much more thorough. There seems to have been more damage. You know, they were maybe a little less. And not, not to say that there wasn't damage to the Capitol, but but they seem to have gone had a little bit lighter touch, uh, if, in my opinion. What's gone on since then, basically, is uh, the Brazilian government and, and especially President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva are trying to crack down on the rioters, but more uh, on the people who enabled or you know maybe financed uh, this incident. So there have been. Uh, investigations into the sources of funding, uh, the, the, the logistics that went behind or that went into getting these people to Brasilia to participate. I mean, it, they were talking about it online. It was expressly, uh, with the intent of, of participating in a riot and attacking these buildings. So there have been investigations into that. Uh, a lot of the initial investigations have focused on Security officials, some senior security officials, the, uh, a Supreme Court Justice Alexander de Marias, uh, has issued arrest warrants, or he issued them on Tuesday, uh, for Anderson Torres, who, uh, got fired on Sunday, but had been the head of public security for the Federal District of Brasilia, uh, and Fabio Augusto, who had been, again, also got fired, had been the commander of the district's military police force. The Supreme Court has ordered his arrest, saying his failure to prevent the riots was potentially criminal. He's been on holiday in the United States, but on Tuesday denied any complicity and promised to return to Brazil. Torres, I think, is still in Florida. He was in Florida on Sunday, very plausibly denying any any involvement uh, in Sunday's riot. Augusto, I'm not sure what the status is, uh, what his status is, but both of them have been, uh, have arrest warrants now issued uh, against them. 
there have been, I think at this point, over 500 people arrested for among the actual rioters. Uh, the Brazilian authorities picked up around 1,500 people, uh, have released something like 600 of them uh, for different reasons, some on humanitarian grounds, some for, I guess, just not having been uh, participants in any serious way. So, you know, where things stand, basically, I think, is there is a strong push to kind of root out the uh, the culprits of this at a, at a deep level. Um, there, there are questions about the performance of security forces on Sunday. Um, there are multiple videos seeming to show, you know, kind of police forces and, and military forces n- not necessarily taking the rioting very seriously, although the military did come in eventually uh, and quelled it and arrested people. Um, there are also questions about the performance of Brazilian security forces in the days and weeks leading up to this. As I say, there was open discussion online uh, of putting together an event like this, and yet the security forces seem to have been shockingly or maybe not so shockingly unprepared or un, you know, uninterested in dealing with it uh, when it actually happened. So there are a lot of questions swirling around. Uh, you know, I, I hesitate to use the term deep state, but that is kind of what it is. Um, so, you know, that's that's basically where things stand at this point. It's a lot still to be determined and investigations are ongoing. Lula seems very intent in a way that I would say is not comparable to the way the U.S. government approached the January 6th riots. Uh, he seems very intent on making sure that, that people are punished and, and you know, arrested and, and prosecuted for uh, their roles in this incident. So you mentioned January 6th. There's been a lot of comparisons about the influence of January 6th on January 8th. Have we learned anything? Has anyone said anything about being directly inspired? Uh, do we just think it's kind of the ambient fact that U.S. media dominates the world and U.S. culture dominates the world? I would say more the latter. I haven't seen anybody say, you know, I, I think, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people at the level of like Torres and, and you know, whoever was funding this who, who probably wouldn't want to talk about this openly. You know, they probably, it would be to admit that they, uh, played some role in it. Um, there was a piece at the New Republic by Andre Pagliarini, a historian that I thought was interesting, comparing fairly explicitly these two incidents. And, and he, he talked about the, the differences more than the similarities. I think there's some, yeah, I think, you know, as you say, U.S. political culture kind of dominates the world and we export the idea of, let's say, you know, storming the Congress building. But that's not to say that you know, Brazil doesn't have its own history of this kind of thing. Certainly, this is a country that's been under military government uh, in the past. So there's there's not, you know, there, there's there's a lot here that's kind of uh, indigenous to Brazil. But uh, Pagliarini's comparison was interesting, I thought. You know, on the one hand, you could argue that this, despite the material damage being, I think, more severe, uh, you could argue that this was, this riot was somewhat less, imminently dangerous than the January 6th riot because nobody was there. Like the, the Congress wasn't there. The, uh, you know, Supreme Court justices weren't there. Lula was even out of town. So there was no immediate danger, as you could argue there was on January 6th to members of Congress or to, you know, senior, senior officials. On the other hand, this was an open call for a military. I mean, this is basically asking for the military to step in. The idea behind this, if there was an idea, if there was a coherent idea behind this, it was to create so much chaos 
that the Brazilian military would step in and impose itself and then, I guess, reappoint Jair Bolsonaro as president. Um, the As compared, I think, with January 6th, which was as, as kind of extra democratic as it was, they were trying to stop a democratic process and they were, they were still somehow functioning within the boundaries of the the electoral system. It was yeah, about I think stopping exactly. The, the kind of it was about account. fulfilling democracy as opposed right. to basically abrogating it. Even if right. the, the, the the method was clearly an abrogation, uh, the imagination yeah. was the fulfillment of democracy, not literally calling in an exogenous actor to end democracy. Exactly, it's just exactly. different. Yeah. So well, it's different, and, and arguably in a in a long term way. I mean, you know, Bolsonaro got what, I think over 55 million votes, I mean, if, close to 60 million, I think, votes in the the second round, at least, of the, the presidential election. That's a lot of people. I mean, that's almost half the country, or at least half the people who voted uh, in that election, who, you know, some significant portion of them may be at the point where they just don't want democracy anymore. They don't think it works. Their guy lost. Uh, and so they've given up, and that to me has has serious uh, could have serious long term repercussions that that you know uh, maybe I would uh, are not necessarily the case at least yet uh, here in the U.S. Yeah, the political cultures are significantly different, particularly right. vis-a-vis the relationship with democracy. If you think that Brazil had a military dictatorship in our lifetimes, uh, I believe it ended in eighty five. That's just a fundamentally different uh, political culture. Right. Exactly. Um, so let's stay in Latin America. And Derek, why don't you tell us about the protests happening in southern Peru? Yeah. So, I mean, people are aware, I, I think, that uh, there have been protests going on in Peru since uh, former President Pedro Castillo uh, was removed from office last month. He was impeached after attempting to dissolve Congress, uh, you know, somewhat extra legally, I would argue. But, um, you know, people are upset about the move to impeach him and remove him uh, by what had been, you know, an obviously unfriendly Congress that that was gunning to get him out of office from pretty much the moment he took it. There have been there was sort of a lull, somewhat uh, in in these protests over the holidays. I, I'm sure the holiday season had something to do with that, uh, but they've picked back up, and and particularly in southern Peru, in the Puno region and and surrounding areas, southern Peru is a little maybe poorer than the national average. It's certainly more indigenous than uh, other parts of Peru or sort of the average part of Peru. And that's where, to the extent that Castillo had a base of support, and I don't want to overstate this because polling indicated that his approval rating was not very high. It was higher than Congress, but not high. Uh, But to the extent that he had a base of support, I think you could argue it was largely in the southern part of the country. That's where the protests have been most heated of late, uh, on Monday, and uh, there were a couple of incidents in Puno, and 17 people were killed. That, uh, as far as I know, is the bloodiest single day. There have been about 40 people killed uh, in these protests since they began last month, but that was the bloodiest single day for these protests. And it's escalated uh, kind of criticism of the security forces uh, for uh, using lethal tactics against protesters. It's raised calls for investigations. Uh, the following day in the city of Juliaca, which is also in, in Puno, a group, uh, a mob, as the uh, Peruvian authorities called it, attacked uh, a police vehicle. They killed one police officer and wounded another. Um, so this has, 
you know, turn into a, a fairly combustible situation. Uh, prosecutors now, uh, there was a report on Wednesday that prosecutors have uh, started investigating the conduct of a number of senior officials, including Dina Boluarte, who's the president currently, the interim president of Peru, uh, her new prime minister, Alberto Otorola, uh, the, the defense minister, the interior minister, just, you know, a number of top officials in the government over their conduct in terms of managing the security forces and handling these protests. Uh, not sure. Again, that's, that's fairly new development. So who knows, uh, where that's going to lead, but, um, definitely a tense situation. The government has started to imply or to suggest that there are nefarious foreign forces that are fomenting protests and unrest in the southern part of the country. And the finger seems to be pointed at Bolivia and specifically at the former president of Bolivia, Evo Morales. He's been banned from entering Peru. Uh, He and a few others, uh, the rest of them I don't think were named, Uh, but Morales specifically seems to be the target of this uh, attempt, I would say, to kind of, you know, shed uh, responsibility or, or duck responsibility for what's been going on and kind of point to, you know, foreign actors, which only makes things, I think, more dangerous because the more you can otherize the protesters, uh, and say, you know, they're agents of a foreign government or agents of foreign influence, or, you know, maybe, you know, you get to the point where you argue it's just foreigners coming across the border and making trouble, the easier it becomes to justify harsher and harsher crackdowns. So uh, I would say that's only going to make things potentially worse. Thanks, Derek. You may or may not know that in March 1947, President Harry S. Truman became the first U.S. president to visit Mexico. But in 2023, President Joseph Robinette Biden is following in his great footsteps. Tell us about uh, Biden's uh, visit to <laughs> I Mexico. I thought you were going to say he became the last U.S. president. To visit Mexico. <laughs> I was like, well, uh, how do you know that? Uh, no, Biden went to Mexico this week. Uh, he had a summit one-on-one with uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the, the president of Mexico, uh, followed I just, by... Everyone, I'd sorry, I just want to underline Derek's accent work. Derek, thank you very that's much. That's three it years of out, high school Spanish. It comes out that's sometimes, doesn't come Spanish. out, but it's very, very good. I, I, I it like comes it. Out with the languages here. I've actually studied. <laughs> so, yeah, and then uh, then they had the, uh, I, I, I honestly can't believe they call it this, but they had the Three Amigos Summit, uh, which is supposed to be an annual gathering of the three leaders of the NAFTA, or now I guess we're supposed to call it the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement or whatever, trade block. Uh, so Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, also headed down uh, for their discussions Biden's meeting with AMLO on Monday uh, seems to have been maybe a little bit tense, actually. They put on a show beforehand, like touring Mexico City, and uh, Biden uh, in particular made his, he flew into uh, Felipe Angeles International Airport, which is a facility that's been one of AMLO's big projects, big kind of infrastructure projects. Uh, it's and expected it's something to that's cost. been talked about for decades. Decades. Yes, it's been Benito talked about Juarez for decades. Has a lot of problems. Actually, here tangent. 
the scariest experience I ever had in an airplane was flying from Oaxaca to Mexico City. We landed, and because there were planes in our way and we would have crashed into them, we had to immediately take off. So that just underlined to me. It was the scariest <laughs> thing that ever happened. So Holy that would have I, that would have been before American Prestige. So my life mission wouldn't have even begun to be fulfilled. That's true. Yeah. We but could, uh, yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm into not dying at Mexico City Airport. <laughs> I mean, there's been some criticism of this project. It's expected to cost over $4 billion. And it's environmentally and it's horrible done. as well, right? It's environmentally yeah, terrible. I, I, this is the problem, yeah. I, I'm, I'm um, kind of kidding. I don't know It's not even a not. convenient distance. It's like an hour away from Mexico City, so it's not even like a convenient distance. Yeah, it's like a Heathrow situation, yeah. Um, so there's been, there's been some kind of criticism of this project. So Biden flying into that airport, I think, is, uh, you know, was sort of a, a concession to AMLO and kind of, you know, promoting uh, the utility of that project. Um, now, they did talk about, uh, you know, as I say, they did, they did kind of put a happy face on things. They were palling around, shaking hands, et cetera. But once they got into their actual meeting, and this was in front of reporters before they kind of, uh, you know, started talking one-on-one or, well, not one-on-one, but, in, you know, more privately, uh, AMLO was a, was pretty critical of Biden and, and the U.S. in general. Now, AMLO's, one of AMLO's big projects has been to pressure the U.S. to provide more economic support for Latin America, particularly for Central America, to deal with migration, for the Caribbean. And, you know, he kind of chided Biden for what he called the U.S. abandonment uh, of this region. Therefore, I hold that uh, this is the moment for us to determine to do away with this abandonment, this disdain, and this forgetfulness for Latin America and the Caribbean. Biden, you know, responded with a, a sort of partial defense of uh, U.S. foreign aid in general, which, you know, is... is uh, pitifully small, frankly, but and then kind of made a criticism of his own in terms of AMLO's performance in stopping the flow of fentanyl in particular, but illegal drugs in general into the United States. Of course, nobody talks about the flow of guns from the United States into Mexico, which only makes that situation more difficult. Uh, so there was a little tension there, and that relationship is not has not seemingly been the greatest. Uh, AMLO famously skipped the summit of the Americas last year. Uh, in Los Angeles after the U.S. Dis- refused to invite, you know, Venezuela, Cuba, I think Nicaragua. I can't remember if there were any other ones. Um, so th- there's been some tension there. And AMLO famously seemed to have gotten along fairly well with Donald Trump. So that's another uh, kind of maybe, you know, point of contention here. By comparison, he does not seem to be getting along quite as well with Biden. Uh, now, they, they did have, as I say, the Three Amigos Summit uh, on Tuesday with Trudeau. Uh, they mostly seem to have discussed kind of regional manufacturing, supply chains, doing more to integrate these things and produce manufactured goods in the Americas as opposed to going outside the region. Uh, there was some speculation that they might talk about AMLO's subsidies uh, for the Mexican state-owned energy firms, which is a sore spot uh, for the U.S. and Canadian governments and some other uh, foreign governments because it's seen as kind of anti-competitive or, uh, you know, unfair competitive advantage for those Mexican firms 
in comparison to you know international firms from the U.S. or from Canada or from Europe uh, in terms of competing in the Mexican energy market. But I don't know that they talked about that. If they did, uh, they clearly didn't uh, make any uh, any headway on it. Derek, the newsman, Derek Newsman. That's what your name would be if this was the 14th century. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. They named yeah, Derek, people after, they named the people after their trades. Yeah. <laughs> Derek Newslettermen of, of the great Newslettermen <laughs> dynasty. Um, thank you so much. Uh, and I, I do want to say uh, to everyone, thank you so much for listening. A genuine happy new year. I, I actually missed chatting with Derek every week about the news. Uh, and this year, uh, Derek and I would like to engage more with fans. So if you have any thoughts about what's going on, what's going on in the world, uh, feel free free to comment on the Substack. Um, we really appreciate all of you and thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Happy New Year, everybody. Bye. Thanks.